Hello, beautiful listeners. It's Rob with Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We know you love the stories we tell, and we love telling them. However, producing and hosting the podcast is not free, but there's a way you can help. Find us on Patreon. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive content, early episode releases, and all other sorts of goodies. Go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Every cent we take in goes back to making the show bigger and better. Thank you, we love you, and as always, hold fast and enjoy the show. Gentlemen, breathe deep, and we're going to begin our vocal warm-up for this specific episode on three, one, two, back from the mics, three. Now nobody's listening. And for those of you who are still here, welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris. Chris, God damn it. What did I just say? Hang on. Hang on. It was the growl. All right, let's try. Let's try that again. Uh, welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Michael Ernett, the partner. I am Kyle Graper! Once again, for the human beings. <laughs> Kyle Graper. Thank you. I almost, I almost hit the, the lot, horn actually. button because we just did that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, welcome back. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. Does it hurt your throat or is it the testicle grabbing that you did? <laughs> the little A, little B. <laughs> yeah, I wish he, he's wishing I would let go. <laughs> so Usually it's the dog. Yeah. Fuck, man. It's good to be back. He was it's suspiciously quiet on that. Dude, everybody just mm, mm, mm. leave it. Leave it. We don't. Oh want no, him. he's he's down there. He's looking around. Oh, he's ready. So yes, the, uh, it's fuck, man. It's good to be back. It, it is. is. It's been too long. Everybody's yeah. just been getting COVID. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But, again, everybody, apologies for the um, uh, uh, for not being here for a while. Thank you for your patience with the delay. While I was I was recovering from about uh, of COVID, we were all hunkering down as all these Omicron cases blew up. Um, I hope everybody's been enjoying the short form episodes we've been putting out. Uh, we figured that was a way for us to kind of circumvent the need to to gather in place for a little while. Uh, those are still going to keep coming, I think, every now and again, even though we are going to be back to your regularly scheduled uh, conjugal podcast. I don't know if that's the right word. Oh, God. <laughs> that's well, somebody's right definitely word. getting fucked. That's the, new, that's the new Patreon tier? <laughs> that's, that's the $10 a month tier. Yeah. Oh, God. So... Yeah, so today's a bit of a first for us, as we, we haven't really done a dive on the podcast into any kind of art or artist. And so when we were talking about ways to break into exploring this area, we were a little stuck on how to approach it, but we figured out that there's nothing that brings together the most compelling aspects of our kind of story, i.e. the artistic personalities, the cultural environment, the public reaction, and the failures of human behavior, quite like a particular music scene. Now, there are plenty of these to choose from since the advent of the modern music environment, but in addition to something that made for a compelling story, we needed something that would be a little more specialized. I'm so excited about our deep dive in the Tom DeLonge's collapse. <laughs> so we could do an examination of punk in the 70s, but that would keep us here for 20 episodes talking about it. 80s boobies, 80s boobies, 80s boobies. <laughs> or flat, flat 80s asses. Yeah. <laughs> same. They same made goes. mom jeans for a reason. Yeah. Uh, the same goes for the birth of rock in the 50s or early or the early 90s rap and hip-hop scenes. And then we found it. A music scene where the stories have their roots stretching into ancient legend, 
where the music has its roots in a long lineage of rock innovators, and the personalities and their actions have their roots in the sheer level of what in the fuckness that we love in our subject matter. For a mix of death, violence, folklore, and full-on, exhaustingly dorktastic self-seriousness, you can't beat Norwegian black metal. Yeah! Kyle, you're going to be doing that a lot, aren't you? He's going to be doing that a lot. It actually hurts a lot. <laughs> so, we, um, we are... We, 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 you did... I used my... My source material was all on ABBA. We're right. Nothing okay. is darker you are, or blacker than ABBA. Let's you, just take a chance on Padre. <laughs> <laughs> take a chance, take a, take a chance, chance. So in the late 80s and early 90s, a small but enthusiastic movement was created out of a bunch of misfit musicians that managed to combine a special brand of Satanism a nihilistic urge to overthrow the comforts of civilized society, a bit of a Nazi problem, and a knowledge of folklore pulling from every source from Norse myth to J.R.R. Tolkien. The events in this story are also very interesting because not only did they sit astride the satanic panic and the East Coast-West Coast rap wars here in the U.S. in terms of the timeline, but they also seem to mix elements of both of these cultural phenomena. Although, unlike the rap wars, the Norwegian black metal scene involved very little money, and unlike the satanic panic, the crimes that occurred in Norway in the early 90s actually happened. I also want to start this series off by saying that while I am a fan of a bunch of forms of metal, I am at best a casual fan. I think the rest—I think the same goes for yeah. the rest of us as yeah. well. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there who take metal, and especially some of the harder types of metal, very seriously, including some who are probably listening to this series. And I want to reiterate that while we did a lot of research for this series, there may be a few things we missed or got mixed up, so feel free to reach out with corrections. Also, we definitely, we're definitely going to be giving our opinions on some of the artists and genres that play a role in this topic, and I want to reiterate that these are merely our opinions. So when it comes to art and entertainment, we believe in letting people like the things they like, and so if we're shitting on an artist or genre you love, that's merely us expressing our taste, not criticizing yours. You like Fuck what you like. Fuck that. I, you hear me talk about Pittsburgh, Dad. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> It's not. It's not just my opinion. But that's it's a not personal music. dislike yeah. of Pittsburgh Dad fans. <laughs> so, our primary source for this series is a fantastic book called Lords of Chaos by, so by Michael Moynihan and Diedrich Soderlund, which uses news and police reports as well as extensive interviews with the musicians involved to help piece together a picture of how the scene came to be and what it turned into. Some people have taken issue with this book's veracity, but I've not been able to nail down specifically what about it that they've taken issue with. And it's generally people like Varg Vickerness who have the most to say about it, and that dude loves nothing more than the sound of his own voice. Oh, he sure do. Uh, I also pulled from the documentary Until the Light Takes Us, which is something of a where-are-they-now exploration of a lot of the characters in this story and centers on Fenris, a.k.a. Gilvan Nagel, uh, drummer and vocalist for the band Dark Throne. <coughs> also, I'd like to extend a big thanks to my friends Christian Cordero and Phil Kay, both of whom are far more dedicated metalheads than I for their help in parsing this story out and helping me keep track of all the genres and types of metal that there are. Uh, one final point of order I want to bring up is that we're going to be talking about a series of artists and their work, and while we were thinking that we may work some clips of their songs into this episode, we realized that we were going to be moving into some iffy territory regarding fair use, and so we didn't run a risk any infractions. So what I've taken the liberty of doing is going on to Apple Music and Spotify and creating a playlist of songs from the artists we're discussing in this series so that you can hear some of what we've listened to uh, over the last month or so. So go on to either platform and search TRR Podcast Black Metal Playlist and you'll be able to find it. So I hope you enjoy it. Any uh, Anything else regarding sources? Any other points of order before we, uh, we really begin? Mike, I know that yeah. you watched the movie. There, there's yeah, a I Lords did. of Chaos movie. Yeah, I, I watched the movie last night. There were uh, actually a couple of podcasts that, um, a true crime podcast mm -hmm. that I listened to, that basically gave a pretty objective, um, 
uh, telling of the story. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. They were true crime, crime stories. They were a little pedantic, mm-hmm. but um, not that I'm going to mention any particular names here, but there's information out there. Yeah, and actually what's, what's so interesting about sourcing for this story is that all of these primary sources, the vast, vast majority of them, with the exception of a couple articles I found in German and in English, are in Norwegian, Swedish, or uh, or Danish, none of which I speak, and I don't think any of you guys do either. I thought you took this seriously. No. Oh, yeah, come you. on. You, so, can't, you, you can't learn at least one of those three languages I, for a... Come Michael, we're doing have, two parts, man. I like, have tried. I will. You got a week. Two parts. I you got another it. week. I will have it for the second part. By okay, Duolingo good. Premium, you got this. <laughs> the Duolingo Premium is that bird just comes to your house and kicks the shit out of you. <laughs> <That's too hilarious>. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, any more? Uh, any more for the point of for the for the good of the order before we start telling the story of Norwegian black metal? I just this is such a fun story. This scene is insane. It, I love this. It I is until so, it isn't. I am so thirsty for this story. It's so good. I am, I am relatively, just based on your excitement of this, Kyle, and what we've talked about off, off the air, I am relatively sure in the multiverse there is a version of you that's involved in this. Oh, it's God. just King Diamond. Yeah. <laughs> I was way too chubby post-high school to be in this scene. That's true. Most of these are ropey little dudes. Well, they it's are. only because they're Scandinavian. They're very like thin, athletically built people. Mm-hmm. Well, there's 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 Scandinavian trim, and then there's these guys. They're built like Gollum, and and so 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 white. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of these kids are look like the kid in your computer class in high school who taught you how to sideload Doom on the typing computer. <laughs> yeah, that is true. So yeah, they all look like that IT guy you never want to talk to. Like yeah. Kyle? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Why do you think he was so good at the vocal warm-up? <laughs> God, there it is again. I hate it. I hate it so much. So for anybody who knows anything about the genre of heavy metal, you know just how vast and varied a genre it can be. And talking about varying types of metal is a guaranteed way to get people popping up on social media with the whole, well, actually, I think the Dark Throne is more extreme metal rather than black metal. So starting from its roots in the hard rock bands of the 70s, including storied acts like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Alice Cooper, Kiss, ACDC, and a bunch more, it wouldn't take long for metal to become its own region of rock and roll and for other types of metal to coalesce within this world. So you have thrash metal with classic groups like Slayer, Metallica, Pantera, Megadeth, Anthrax. Thrash also dovetails with speed metal with bands like Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Iron Maiden. Uh, Thrash and speed metal are by far the most popular types of metal. There's also death metal branching out from its twin ancestral homes of Stockholm, Sweden, and Tampa, Florida. My father still refers to basically anything louder than Bob Seger as death metal. Yeah. I don't know why, but that's that's a thing that he does. But 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 the chippy is a special breed. Oh yeah, he different. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's kind of generational. There's a lot of people. But it, it's just it's kind of a yeah. it, it, death metal is kind of a lumped class once you're over like 55. <laughs> yeah, once everybody gets past Gordon Lightfoot, that's yeah. just yeah. <laughs> Jeez. So, yeah, and Cor- then, Gordon Lightfoot is the most Satanist music I've ever listened to. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> you make a very good point. So, there, uh, yeah, death metal is the gore splattered slasher fic of the genre with bands like Cannibal Corpse, Children of Bodom, and Carcass. But these bands have some of the funniest and most outrageous song titles. Some of these are great. You have Regurgitation of Giblets, Blunt Force Castration, Submerged in Boiling Flesh, and Malignant Defecation. <laughs> 
Hmm. They really Kyle's having flashbacks. Kyle's having flashbacks. Yeah, you're you're really focusing on the fourth one there, aren't Ugh. you? That's your anthem. He just like slowly took his headphones off. Yeah. <laughs> so now that he just lit a cigarette and stared into space. <laughs> so now it the changes mo- a man. <laughs> friend, the end. <laughs> so now the most out now the most outrageous band names belong to the genre of grindcore, which is generally oriented towards being the most outwardly offensive of the lot, with groups like Pig Destroyer, Jesus Loves Anal, <laughs> Goat Whore. This is my favorite. Rhino Clit, <laughs> Alabama Thunder Pussy, and the Tony Danza Tap Dance Extravaganza. I think Alabama Thunder Pussy used to be one of the shot pitchers at Hemingway's. <laughs> I had I had an Alabama Thunder Pussy album that was stolen uh, on a field trip when I was in high school. <laughs> Wasn't she one of the contestants on uh, RuPaul's Drag Race? And all like, I think that was uh, Giuliani's character on uh, Mass Singer. <laughs> oh fuck that. <laughs> But yeah, well, somebody, I was just, somebody stole my CDs. You know, I'm dating myself here. Yeah. But uh, I can only imagine how disappointed they were whenever they got home. They're like, they're like, what the fuck is this? What is wrong with this person? They're like, scroll. They're like, and Goat Whore was in there when it was like, like a bunch of Judas Priest and Motley Crue. Best and of then, Rhino Clit. <laughs> but then it was just like best boring. They shit. have a best of album? Yeah, it was just like the, the Philadelphia, like, Philharmonic Orchestra, like, wait, what? what? This guy's not okay. You could. T- they they've got a best. Of, they probably, Williams, like what? You can tell these I, bands were named before Google was a significant I, thing yeah. because typing Rhinoclit now into a Google search engine is really gonna. It, fuck they're gonna up get your, buried. Yeah, they're gonna yeah, get yeah. buried. Um, and then of course there's the most famous, uh, uh, the most famous grindcore band, which is Napalm Death. Mention Napalm Death to your average black metal fan, and you're gonna have a fight on your hands. These people hate Napalm Death. So you also have Doom Metal, which is heavily gothic and, well, I, I guess doomy, with groups that I love like St. Vitus, Witchfinder General, and Candlemass. You have Industrial Metal with groups like Rammstein, Ministry, Orgy, and White Zombie. Folk Metal plays on a lot of barbarian and Viking imagery and features a lot of instruments like accordions, violins, bagpipes, and various types of large Scandinavian horn. And that's another favorite band, uh, genre of mine with great bands like Teresis, Finn Troll, and Shiltron. Piggybacking off of that tradition comes something close to our hearts, which is, of course, pirate metal, with bands like Ailstorm, Running Wild, Swashbuckle, and the legendary act that is Pittsburgh's own The Bloody Seaman, who you can hear at the beginning and end of every one of our episodes. There's uh, Metalcore, a.k.a. Emo Metal, which is Barely Metal, a.k.a. Hot Topic Metal, with god-awful acts like Atreyu, Killswitch Engage, As I Lay Dying, and Hatebreed, but it still fits metal better than any other genre. And of course, there's the genre that peaked in our younger years, new metal, with bands like Korn, Slipknot, System of a Down, and Limp Bizkit. There are a laundry list of other genres that can be totally independent of or heavily overlap with some of what we've already mentioned before, which... uh, So you have Celtic metal, you have symphonic metal, sludge metal, goth metal, hair metal, electronic horror, stoner metal, the list goes on. I put some examples of these different genres into the later part of our playlist so you can hear what they sound like. Of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the narrowest of metal genres, which is Waffle House Metal, which is limited to early-stage kid rock songs. That's a little one for Mike, JoJo, and Ezra. I've been there. Yep. (laughs) Now I'm lighting up the cigarette and looking far off. (laughs) (laughs) This is the end. (laughs) My only friend, the end. So now, at, at, at the same time, there is a band. Instead of the helicopter, I, while we're talking about genres, fan of a Waffle House. Before we get into that, 
I saw a band in 2003 at OzFest on the second stage that I will never forget, and it's because the band's called Cradle of Filth. Oh, yeah. And I have no idea what they would fall into as as far as a genre. All I know is that it sounded like a an entire crematorium of live children burning. Cradle of Filth, that's funny you should bring that up, because Cradle of Filth is most often defined as black metal. Yeah, I did not know that. Yep, and uh, you are accurate with that description of the music. (laughs) And we're actually going to be talking about Cradle of Filth later on in the second episode of the series. So despite the spider's web of the development of various metal genres, there are a few notable stopping points on the journey that really uh, uh, towards black metal's development as a form of music, and as an explanation of why their aesthetic and worldviews turned out the way they did. Rock and roll has always drawn the attention of a certain sector of the religious and conservative communities, which for decades has thrown the labels of evil and satanic onto everything from ragtime through to jazz, blues, and especially since the dawn of rock and roll. Everyone from Little Richard to Elvis has been labeled agents of the Dark One. That damn Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, she got it a lot, Mm -hmm. yeah. So by the late 70s, this attention had shifted onto the harder rock acts of the decade, Kiss, ACDC, Zeppelin, Sabbath, and basically anyone else who wore elaborate costumes, used fire or stage blood, and sang lyrics that were sexually charged or incorporated esotericism or high fantasy into them. That all changed, however, with the rise to prominence of a British metal band by the name of Venom. So Venom stands out in this story for two main reasons, one being that they were the first band to use the term black metal as both the name of their 1982 album release and a later descriptor of their type of rock, but also because they were the first popular act to use overt satanic imagery on both their album art and worked into their stage show. They also were the first popular act to use the intense, evil-sounding stage names meant to match their show's imagery. Venom was made up of Mantus, Abaddon, and Kronos. Real names Tony, Conrad, and Jeff. The thing about Venom is that while their imagery and lyrics with songs like In League with Satan and Let Me Rule in Hell provoked a big-time response, including statements from Margaret Thatcher and the Archbishop of Canterbury, they didn't take it seriously. Their satanic imagery was meant as a draw for audiences and as a way for them to have fun and get laid. They didn't actually believe it and have said as much in many, many interviews. However, the black metal scene likes to pretend that these statements don't exist. When Samoth, the guitarist of Emperor, was asked what he thought of Venom's comments about it all being an act, he simply said, quote, we choose to believe otherwise. Now, Venom still... I do I, kind of get the, felt, the feeling that Baphomet doesn't hang out with a dude named Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're probably right about that. Varg's name was Christian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Venom still uses this imagery, they still play shows today, and, it's, and still says that it's all in good fun. And to illustrate this, Tony Abaddon Bray... The drummer is next-door neighbor to and very good friend of Rowan Williams, the Archbishop Emeritus of Canterbury, the most recent Archbishop Emeritus. So, shows you how seriously they take it. The next step towards black metal came in the form of the Danish metal band Merciful Fate, and their lead singer, the wonderful being that is, King Diamond. Nice. Oh, my God. Born Fantastic yeah. album art, still. So, born Kim Bendix Pedersen, King Diamond and Merciful Fate took the imagery of Venom and brought it up a level. King Diamond was also the first to integrate elaborate black and white face paint into more extreme metal in the tradition of Kiss, but with inverted crosses and black tears instead of kitty cats and starmen. He also popularized a higher, more grating falsetto singing voice, integrating powerful screams and shouts into the lyrics. He caps off the imagery by taking two real human femurs, where he sourced these from we don't know, and attaching them into an upside-down cross on the bottom of his microphone. 
Now, what also sets King Diamond apart from previous acts is that while his worldview is vastly different from the Norwegian black metal artists to come, he actually believes in satanic power and language, being an avowed member of the Satanic Temple, the organization founded by Anton LaVey in the 1960s. Then, like an unsuspecting Hungarian duchy, the metal world was introduced to Bathory. I love these guys so much. This Swedish metal act is probably the biggest single musical influence on the artists we're discussing as part of the scene. It was with the rise of Bathory and its lead singer, dubbed Quarthon, that came so many of the facets of black metal as we know it, and they were solidified as the example to follow. You have the atmospheric lo-fi quality of the recordings, the relentless percussion and guitar tracks, grating and intense vocals, as well as going beyond mere satanic, satanic imagery on stage and doubling down on the shock factor, and bringing in barely decipherable album art. Now, Bathory would also reflect some of the Norwegian black metal's other later qualities and their unfortunate dipping of their toes into Nazi imagery, folded into a lot of Norse mythological aesthetic. Now, let's get this out of the way now and, and, and explain that black metal would have would, it would go on to have a bit of a Nazi problem, but with the exception of one dude in particular, none of them believed it that seriously. It was kind of like the punks in the UK I, yeah, in the 70s that used it to, to piss this. people off. Yeah, a lot like Sid Vicious running around in his swastika t-shirt or yeah. Johnny Ramone running around in his SS uniforms in Brooklyn. At the same time, in Scandinavia, there is a lot of white nationalism. <laughs> oh, they're still, they're still very, very, very no, yeah. real. But yeah, they're going for shock value. They're doing their level best to appear as the antithesis of good and to piss off a lot of people for whom the war, and in the case of large areas of Scandinavia, the German occupation is still very much in living memory. Most are doing it to be punks. Yeah. Some were true believers. It's, it's leaning too far into the idea that controversial art is popular art. Yeah. And the thing is, the Nazi stuff is not good. It's not okay. But just about all of these guys that are still around have come out and said, yeah, that was stupid. We shouldn't have done that. And, but and, it's also, they were yeah. using an awful lot of Norse symbols, they were using a lot of things taken from Norse mythology, mm -hmm. which a lot of the things from the Reich were. Mm -hmm. yeah. like the swastika, right. yeah, the swastika was co-opted. Mm -hmm. The swastika is the sun. Yeah, the, the, the swastika, the trihammer, all of these symbols. Yeah, the lightning what's, bolts. What's, yeah. what's, the di what's the diamond <clears throat> The diamond with the legs on it, the rune? Yeah, the triskelion. Yeah. 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 But the problem is, once the Nazis get it, it's ruined forever. Yeah, but you, can't, yeah. you can't get it's it back. It's really tough no. to get it back. So I'm taking it back. <laughs> <laughs> However, we'll get into black metal's Nazi problem in more detail in the next episode. So with the emergence and rising popularity of acts like these, black metal was evolving into its own distinct branch of metal, and Scandinavia was fast becoming the center of the black metal world. The stage was set for black metal as we know it to become the scene that it would eventually turn into, and in more ways than one, it was time for the mayhem to begin. Woo! So definitely the fathers of the second wave of black metal. Mayhem was founded in 1984 in Oslo, Norway, by guitarist and original vocalist Oystein Erseth, a.k.a. Euronymous, a Greek name which means Prince of Death. Joined by bassist Jorn Steberud, a.k.a. Necro Butcher. It's so good. And uh, drummer Jan Axel Blomberg, a.k.a. Hullhammer. They found after releasing their first EP, Death Crush, which also includes another one of my favorite song names, Chainsaw Gutsfuck, that something was missing from their sound, and thus they set out to find themselves a new, dedicated vocalist to take over for Euronymous so he didn't have to pull double duty. This motherfucker. And could focus on riffing for Satan. In 1988, the boys in Mayhem received a package from a 19-year-old Swedish metal vocalist named Per Ingve Olin, containing a letter of interest, a demo tape, and a little decomposing mouse nailed to a little cross made out of sticks, aka the perfect application to be in a black metal band. It didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. No, it's, it's well, okay, I got this, I got my stamp. Well, I've almost forgot the little crucified mouse. 
we're going to find out that this is very on brand for this dude. Oh, yeah. I mean, this went over with the boys like a church on fire, and they agreed that Olin would be the next lead singer of Mayhem, and he moved out to Oslo. Spoiler word. And took on the pseudonym Dead. (laughs) It's a little on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty direct. Yeah, Yeah, he's... You you will notice, dear listener, uh, just the eloquent subtlety that these these young artists... Uh, employ in their craft. Yeah, it's about you know, as what, subtle as cracking a walnut with a 32-pound sledgehammer. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, you know, I used to use a 20-pound sledgehammer at work, and I think I was a little more subtle. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> it, it, like, oh, what's your super cool name? Dead. <laughs> and I'm going to okay, remind the audience that every one of these guys is 19, 120 pounds soaking wet, and like 6'3". Yeah. So now, and, and dear, translucently pale, <laughs> and dear listener, uh, a pale lot of the blue. kids that we're talking about right now have very rich parents. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so surprise, yeah. surprise. And now, Dead took this name because he believed that he actually was dead, having died as a five-year-old child and continued to live on this earth in a state where his mind would simply catch up to his body one day, and he would end this existence that was, according to him, quote, a dream I would soon wake up from. Now, Dead may have had something in common with one of our recent episode subjects in that it's believed that, like Elizabeth Bathory, he may have suffered from Cotard syndrome. While Bathory, and as we mentioned Richard Chase, the infamous vampire of Sacramento, exhibited the rarer side of Cotard symptoms, believing that they needed to consume human blood and flesh in order to nourish themselves or replace parts they thought were deteriorating, the more common way that Cotard's manifests is that the sufferer holds delusional beliefs that they are in some way not fully living that they may be walking undead or existing in some plane that's different from the living plane, and Dead's writings and journals reflect this, showing that he held some desires to be a darker being than he actually was, some of which manifested in his antics, which we'll discuss shortly, but he also expressed a desire to be a vampire, a werewolf, that he wished he had the wherewithal to become a serial killer, but it's clear that while he had no real desire to kill, he was truly obsessed with death, as many young people often are for a while, But with Dead, this obsession played out in his performances and what he did to prepare for them. Now, while Dead wasn't the first metal artist to don the now ubiquitous black and white face paint, he was the one who really leaned into using the makeup to accentuate a corpse-like appearance, giving the paint its now common name of corpse paint. He wanted to go further to gain the appearance of a corpse by having his friends bury him alive for several days before a show, but despite how stupid and easily influenced a lot of these dum-dums would later turn out to be, they all wisely agreed that burying their buddy alive for a few days wasn't a good idea. So Dead decided that he would compromise by burying his clothes in the ground days before a show instead so that he could have the look and smell of having been buried under the earth. And he began to carry a dead crow around in a plastic bag so that he could breathe deep from it and perform, quote, with the stench of death in his nostrils. He did sleep in a coffin. Yeah, he also slept in a coffin. <laughs> Never go huffing with dead. Yeah. He slept He slept in a coffin on a bed frame. Was it on a bed frame or it was, was it on a mattress? So it was on a bed frame because okay. apparently his bedroom was very small and he had to store things under his bed. But one of the things he kept under his bed was dead geese so that he could absorb the essence of death while he slept. <laughs> Kyle, you're yeah, dying over there. Are you okay? It's so good. It's so stupid. I love it so much. Yeah. So... Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? Because they, they all hold up in like this one house. A lot of them, I mean, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I'm sorry, guys. I, 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 I love you all. I, I, I'd do anything for you. You're sleeping with dead geese under your bed. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Padre, don't go upstairs. Oh, okay. 
He treated. He treated. <laughs> I, I'm not going to say anything, but don't go upstairs. <laughs> I say dead geese, not dead hookers. Oh, then fine. You can go upstairs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> treat- oh, no. It's the first one on the left. No, it's, it's, the dead geese are down here, but it's Vinny that put them there. Uh, right. Okay. It's 2022. They're sex workers. Okay. Dead sex workers. <laughs> Thank you. Mike. Not according to the IRS. Yeah. I love this guy treated like the concept of death like I treated Cowboy Bebop when I was 18. Like, it's just so. It's just an adolescent brain getting like. Soaked into he, the I mean, silliest things. Most of us are, are in our thirties at this at, like at this table. Whenever everybody walked out of the Dark Knight after seeing it for the first time, everybody <sighs> walked out as Heath Ledger as the Joker because mm-hmm. we were all young and impressionable. <laughs> yeah. He just did that. Whenever he saw a dead guy, he was like, "Fuck yeah, dead guy! I'm gonna go to Comic Con <laughs> as him now and just yeah. say, you know, I got these scars." So once Dead joined Mayhem, who beforehand had focused more on just making music, having a good time, and partying, things got a lot more serious, a lot darker, and quite a bit more extreme, kind of like when Kyle joined our podcast. Thank you. At one show... and We really got to get that radiator fixed. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, it is the same one we keep him chained to. I feel like I've realized where he learned it. Yeah, I don't want to get it fixed. I don't want it to be too nice. I got to keep him humble. (laughs) So what... So at one show, and keep in mind, during Dead's three-and-a-half tenure with Mayhem, they played about six shows in total. Dead broke a beer bottle on the edge of the stage and sliced his arm open with it in a deep and long cut and spent the rest of the show covering himself, the stage, and most of the audience with his blood, which wasn't that hard considering the audience was about 25 people. So sick from blood loss, he managed to finish the show, but when he was taken for medical attention after staying to watch the other bands... He was told that it was too late for stitches and that all that could be done was to bandage him up and send him on his way, leaving him with a massive, gnarly scar. He so, insisted it's staying after to party. Yeah, so he, he's sitting on a couch with no blood, just, just upset that he can't get drunker. Yeah, just sitting there going, I just, like, don't feel good. See, this is this is the part that... It, I, I, if Guys, if you don't hear me for a little while this is the stuff that sends chills up my spine yeah. because we were talking before before the show tonight we were talking about them i'm okay with it and there's going to be a lot of knife parts of this i'm okay with this the, is a very the knife episode. this there's, is a knife heavy right episode. and there's, i'm there's i'm, the episode I'm gener- a lot of knife parts i'm generally okay with the stabby parts of knife stuff <laughs> the slicey parts are the parts that get me so if if you don't hear from me for a little while it's me going that's your old bugaboo yeah Yeah, good to know by the way i'm really happy that we recorded you saying i'm okay with the stabby stuff because that'll be used in court one day (laughs) to visualize at home mike is now the same color as dead (laughs) a little bit pale blue yeah so yeah and everyone just sat around him smoking drinking and raving about what he'd done and the thing is this wasn't a spur of the moment decision because dead was apparently walking around before the show talking about like oh i'm going to cut myself tonight and people were calling his bluff, like, well, fucking do it, Dad. Fucking do it if you're going to keep talking about it. And he did. They're such nerds. It's this, They're all just yeah. super nerds. Well, that's one of the things, and I will say that the, this comes up in the movie um, multiple times, is Dad will do something just outlandish, or he'll threaten to do something outlandish, and everybody in the, in the band is like, fucking do it, man. Just fucking do it. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is the few shows. But that's that, what happens whenever you get a bunch of nineteen-year-old yeah. men in a room. I yeah. mean, think of the amount of stupid shit that we've done. 
Freshman, right. freshman, mm-hmm. freshman. Do yeah, something crazy. That. Do something crazy. Yeah, the few shows that Mayhem played, thanks to Dead's willingness for self-harm and Euronymous's enthusiasm for upping the darkness factor, became the stuff of legend, despite the small crowd sizes. They started putting torches in front of the stage and shutting off all the other stage lighting so that the whole thing was played by torchlight, which is honestly kind of cool. cool. That's kind of cool. And then they upped the game by purchasing a bunch of pig's heads from a local butcher and mounting them on stakes at the front of the stage. They then took it one step further by starting the biggest show they ever played in front of an audience of about 250 people by chucking a rotting pig's head into the audience, which caused all of all but about 50 of those people to immediately leave. But because of Black Mill's culture of always trying to be more extreme than the other guy, one of the audience members grabbed it and took a big old bite out of it with the predictably yeah. violently pukey results. Dead later remarked in an interview for a Swedish me- uh, music scene regarding the incident, quote, if someone doesn't like blood and rotten flesh thrown in their face, they can fuck off. That's mayhem. And that's exactly what they do because they're false metal posers. You're going to be hearing the word posers a lot, by the posers, way. Posers, this is a, yeah, this is a very poser-heavy yeah. knife uh, series. So as an aside, this reminds me of a story that I absolutely love from back in what I think was the mid-2010s when a Swedish black metal act called Wittain oh, yeah. was playing at Brooklyn Night Bazaar and they brought uh, for the show a massive cauldron hanging from the ceiling on a chain that they absolutely filled full to the brim with pig's blood, and they started swinging it out over the audience, but they were swinging it too hard, and they started getting it all over some of the food stands, and a bunch of people apparently started puking, so the health department had to show up and shut down the show. So you had all these sad metalheads on Twitter talking about, I guess I understand the need for food safety, but like it's still kind of a bummer that they shut down the show. I, mean, I guess I like should have the, kept, I like your, kept it towards the stage. Like your nerd voice and how you prefaced it with their like calm understanding of food safety. Yeah, like, right. Just just resigned acceptance was right. the tone, I, I, I feel. Um, and actually, now that I and think... see that all this is going on at the same time that all we got was Memphis 1991 and yeah. G.G. Allen flinging poo. Mm. <laughs> This, I mean, this whole thing does become very G.G. Allen. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, there was an, okay, there's another Wattain story that I really, really like that apparently one of their gimmicks once upon a time was they used to just chuck a bunch of goat skulls out into the audience, but the tour budget was so low that at the end of the show they had to send all the roadies <laughs> out to, to collect the skulls. Collect the skulls. <laughs> Which I think is really, really funny. <laughs> there's one guy trying to get out with one, he's like, I'm going to yeah. need that back. <laughs> So yeah, and so these stories kind of reflect an ongoing tradition that start that that starts w- uh, with extreme onstage antics, with you know blood, shit, that animals, self harm, all of this stuff. The whole thing becomes, as you said, very Gigi Allen in a hurry. But in recent years, they've all seemed to tone it down. Not necessarily with the music or the imagery, but now on their current tour, Wattain is using a lot of stage blood, and it stays on the stage. They become gore. Yeah, they're actually actually uh, Wattain and Mayhem, I think, are coming to Pittsburgh at the end of March. They are, I really want to. Yeah, they're playing their. Um, where where the, the fuck are they playing? They're playing the Roxian. Yeah. Oh. Which I think is the right kind of size venue for it, but they're calling it the Sanguine Sodomy of America tour. Oh my god. Okay. Yes. So sadly, War still sh- throw shit out though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they still hit the crowd with their stuff. Yeah, but well, it's all it's, like it's health all, department yeah, approved stage, stuff. It's stage stuff. Yeah, yeah. So sadly, Dead's depression and obsession with death got the better of him, and on the eighth of April, nineteen ninety-one, while alone at a house shared by Dead, Euronymous, and Hellhammer, at the age of only twenty-two, Dead slit his wrist with a hunting knife and then put a shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He left a note which only read, "Quote: I didn't come up with this now, but seventeen years ago. Please excuse the blood." Cheers. His body was discovered by Euronymous, who had to climb in through an open window because the tree, the, the three only had one key between them, like common dirtbags. 
who immediately did the right thing and yeah. called the authorities to try to get his friend help. Oh, my right? sweet summer right? child, Kyle. Right? Uh, yeah. So I, I, I remember those halcyon days yeah. of being so innocent. <laughs> but he, but Euronymous climbed through a window because the door was locked. He didn't have a key. So after find and after finding dead, laying on his side, slumped against the wall with half his head missing. Instead of calling the emergency services like a normal person, Euronymous climbed back out the window, went and bought a disposable camera, climbed back into the house, and took a bunch of pictures with Dead's body after having strategically rearranged some of the items in a crime scene. Only then were the police called. What happened after as a result of Dead's suicide was no less appalling. Euronymous called Necrobutcher to deliver the news, but started out by saying, quote, Dead has gone and done something really cool. He killed himself. He said it was a really cool thing to do, which devastated Necro Butcher, who was close to dead and completely broke down after his death, and he would eventually leave Mayhem after not, not very long. Euronymous and Hellhammer didn't take things as the loss of a friend and bandmate, but instead as a marketing opportunity to pump up Mayhem's evil image. One of the photos that Euronymous took of Dead's body was used as the cover art for a bootleg live album called Dawn of the Blackhearts that's now considered to be a part of Mayhem's discography. He claimed that Dead's suicide was the result of black metal becoming too trendy and commercialized, coming off like a pathetic, petulant little bitch when he said in his, statement to, in his written statement to the press, quote, We have declared war. Dead died because the trends people have destroyed everything from the old death metal, black metal scene. Today, quote, death metal is something normal, accepted, and funny. Arg. He wrote down the arg. He sounds like a 30-year-old yeah. complaining about The Last Jedi on fucking Twitter. And we hate it. It used to be spikes and chains, leather and black clothes, but now today it's children in jogging suits and skateboards and hardcore moral ideas. They try to look as normal as possible. This was the only thing Dead loved for as Dead lived for as he hated this world and everything which lives on it. End quote. Now, Euronymous also started a rumor that he had collected some of Dead's brains from the scene and made a stew with it, and was giving out necklaces made with fragments of Dead's skull to friends and artists that he deemed worthy. He also let rumors fly that he had been the one to, who had actually murdered Dead. And none of the members of the scene attended Dead's funeral back in Sweden. And in fact, several called in threats to kill the mourners and Dead's family because he was buried in consecrated ground after a Christian ceremony. <laughs> Now, here's the worst part of it all. It worked. Mayhem's popularity within the scene shot up, and Euronymous suddenly became the biggest name in the scene, having claimed to fame due to his cold-hearted response to Dead's death. After his suicide, which was seen as the ultimate black metal act, Dead was given an almost deified status. He became a saint within the movement. And in an environment of unending backhanded shit talk, no one has ever had a bad word to say about Dead. Everyone has always claimed that he was the real deal. Unfortunately, this paradigm shift after Dead's death started everyone in the Norwegian black metal scene down a much darker path that, with the addition of a couple more key elements, would result in a spiral into violent darkness that many would not escape from. Now, riding on Mayhem's newfound fame in the Scandinavian metal scene due to Dead's suicide, Euronymous decided that the next move was to open up his own record store, which, for our younger listeners, was an actual store where you would walk in and buy music on things called CDs, tapes, and records. Hey, record stores are back. What's a CD? Oh, I forget. You stopped it. Eight tracks. Oh, yeah. nice, well, so nice, we, nice. We good. did vinyl. I was going to make a CDs nuts joke. Eight tracks, no, no, no. <laughs> then tape, then CD, and now we're back to vinyl. Okay, I don't want to leave Chris out. What? Are, did you add a question? No, I what just are, did. What are CDs? I yeah, think you asked. CDs? How about your CDs nuts? Thank you, Chris. <laughs> I just assumed you were going to go with it. Yeah. So it was decided that the name of this record store would be Helvete, the Norwegian word for hell. 
However, when opening up a music store was actually a pretty good business move in the early 90s, particularly in an area like Oslo, which was the center of a pretty burgeoning music scene, Euronymous seemed like he was out to do absolutely everything he could do to utterly fuck up the whole business plan from the beginning. So first off, the shop was financed with his parents' money, so there was very little that he actually owned free and clear. Secondly, it was in a basement. Now, this could have a lot of appeal in a record store, especially among your more indie crowds, but there was no windows, and Euronymous had invested nothing in lighting, to the point where people who went in there later commented that the store was so dark that it was pretty much impossible to see anything, which did very little to help sales. This darkness, far from being something that was merely overlooked, was instead intentional, central to Euronymous's desire to create a sinister atmosphere that would remove any mass appeal that the store could have, and instead winnow the customer base down to those who were dedicated members of the black metal scene. Most of the lighting was provided by candles, and one abandoned experiment required customers to walk around with lit torches. <clears throat> now, this was, now this was quashed by safety inspectors due to the massive fire hazard that came along with it. The decor was also suitably morbid with both the retail space and the back room that was used as storage, a rehearsal space, and a hangout. Everything was painted black, and the central piece was a massive pentagram on the walls, along with tons of other shitty wall art, a bunch of props that wouldn't look out of place in the background of a Hammer horror film, and some framed photos of Dead's corpse. Now here's a quick list of other reasons that Helvetta would never uh, end up turning a profit. First off, everyone in this scene is flat fucking broke. They're all on the dole, and they're struggling musicians and followers who are also mostly kids in their teens and early 20s. So while well, we, you know what you do when you, uh, when, yeah. you, when, when you find a musician on your front porch, don't you? You pay for pay the pizza. For pizza. Yeah. So while the Norwegian uh, welfare system met their basic needs quite well... <laughs> we good? So while the Norwegian welfare uh, system met their needs, their basic needs quite well, there wasn't exactly a lot of cash flowing around to buy music. Also, in the early it's the early 90s, so a web presence of any kind is out, meaning that you're dependent on word of mouth or ads in small circulation zines for advertising, both of which are centered on a scene hell-bent on maintaining exclusivity. It was absolutely filthy all the time, and dead rats, mice, and insects were left out on purpose to rot and leave the smell of death in the air. Euronymous stated this as his intention of never cleaning. As a result, the Oslo City Health Inspector's Office continually levied fines against Euronymous, a few of which he paid, most of which he didn't, causing late fees and extra fines to stack up. He paid fines? Fucking conformist. Yeah. <laughs> By the, time the end, by the time of the end of this story, he was in the hole hundreds of thousands of kroner, which is in the high tens of thousands of dollars for this reason alone. There was also the fact that at any one time, the store would carry only a few dozen albums of a type that Euronymous deemed to be worthy, because, well, I mean, death to false metal. Of course, once you sell a copy of all these albums to everybody in the scene, which is about a few hundred people, you don't have a route to take except going more mass market. So Euronymous was stuck between maintaining his airs of black metal purity and blowing his credibility in order to keep the store open. And we're going to hear more about his business management of that in the next episode. And finally, the store became more than just a record shop. It was a hangout for a lot of the people in this scene. It would become a place where Euronymous would essentially hold court as the new arbiter <clears throat> as the new arbiter of all that was and would become in the black metal scene. So this meant that people every so often would have to come in and pretty much just pay homage to him, especially if they were new in the scene. And when I say show up to pay homage, it wasn't in your regular street clothes. You had to roll in in your full black metal getup, corpse paint and all, which paints a really fun picture of all these black metal kids in like full getup on an Oslo City bus next to a little grandma. We're having their parents drop them off. I mean, this is literally what happened. It's like the subway pictures of New York <clears throat> Comic Con's going on. Yep. So what Helvetta provided for the scene was something they didn't have before, though. A home. 
Now, this it was an absolute shit tip, but it was their shit tip. Before this, the social gatherings of the scene would happen either at their own little shows, of which there weren't many, or at the shows for other more popular metal acts that would come through Scandinavia on tour. So, let's say Metallica's playing Stockholm, all of these black metalers would head to Stockholm from wherever they were coming from, gather there, hang out, communicate, and decide what was going to be cool until the next time they all got together. Now they had more than a place to buy music, party, and fuck when their parents were home. They had a home base. All that was needed to complete what we look back on now as the Norwegian black metal scene was one more key ingredient, which we'll talk about after a quick break. But before we take a quick break, I'd like to present our Estonia fact of the episode. Ooh, we're getting it out of the way early. Ooh. We are, we are. I want to put this in the middle. Did you know that in Estonian, the words for 12 months are pronounced cocks taste good? This has been your Estonia fact of the episode. You're going to Google Translate, aren't you? I might, might do. See you in a minute. Life is too short for bad cocktails. A good party can be a great party with a signature drink and the right bartender making it. From happy hour to reunion, or an intimate dinner to a lavish wedding, the Last Word Cocktail Company can provide everything you need to make your next event an experience that your guests will never forget. The Last Word offers in-person and virtual cocktail classes for both groups and individuals to up your game and teach you the techniques to make the perfect libation. You can learn the art of the Manhattan, the elegance of the martini, and any of the classics from pre-prohibition to modern. When you throw a party, why throw a bad party? And when it comes to cocktails, don't just have a say. Have the last word. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Last Word PGH for more information. Well, I'll be damned. Cocks taste good. Holy shit, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't lie to you, boys. Well, Come on. I can't yes. wait till that's the name of our Estonian he, tour. My question is, was he right? Or was he right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome another, back, everybody. Another Will Ferrell reference. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, and prepare to be exhausted, because now enters the colossal pain in the ass that is Varg Vikernes. Christian Larsen Quisling Vikernes was born in Bergen, Norway in 1973 to a Norwegian dad and a Danish mom who happened to be the niece of Vidkun Quisling, the man who founded Denmark's fascist party and sold them out to the Germans in 1940, leading to five years of a brutal Nazi occupation. Now, she inherited the ideological leanings of her uncle, and she happened to find a Norwegian fellow who shared them, and then out slithered the spewing, crying little hellspawn that would become Varg. During Varg's childhood, his parents spent several years in Iraq, where his father was in charge of developing for Saddam Hussein the computer systems that would help manage the country's economy. Imagine how much like Hussein hated him. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Just like Saddam Hussein, famous for not being super chill. Imagine him. You, you don't say, it, Chris. Stuck in a room with this poor bastard. <laughs> yeah. So, because there was no room for him at the international school, Varg went to an Iraqi school where he claims that he was so isolated and a victim because he was the only European kid. Whereas the real story sounds like everyone went out of their way to make him feel comfortable and special and welcome to the point of switching to learning in English so that he wouldn't be behind. Well, the food here it, it, is so bad and it's always so fucking hot. Well, it, it, hey. He should have sucked it up because the last time we had some white dude with blonde hair in the Middle East, nobody knew anything about him. They put him on a cross. <laughs> the only white guy. The only white guy. 
No wonder he was special. (laughs) They took pains. At 2,000 years, they took pains to make sure that this kid was welcome. It was just a a bunch of humble fishermen. (laughs) Just hanging out with this Ewan McGregor-looking dude. (laughs) I am so glad. I am so glad that you just yeah, compared well, Varg Vickerness to Jesus Christ. I'm sure. Well, Varg I mean, would love well, that. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm just saying. You know, it's actually fine because I know he would hate it. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. He'll probably do a YouTube diss track yeah. about that yeah. exact statement. <sighs> oh, he's banned from YouTube now. So because of really? this, so because oh, yeah. of this tale as old as time of extreme privilege being painted as victimhood, young Varg decided to unnecessarily isolate himself and fell into some of the pretty standard teenage draws of role-playing games, mythology, and fantasy novels, particularly Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. The only difference was that Varg took things way more seriously than other kids his age normally do, and he started to build a worldview that melded Tolkien and the Asatru, that is the, um, the Norse pantheon, together as a matter of fact rather than fantasy. Now, this isn't that troubling, but at the same time as his Asir Third Age of Man mashup was coalescing, Varg was also becoming fascinated with the Nazis, who he loved because they, quote, looked sharp, killed Americans, who Varg really hated and still does, and, and they had the best weapons. Because also, and, But he also had the same worldview that Varg's parents had brought him up with, although they hated Nazis in spite of their white supremacist views because of the complicated nature of 20th century European geopolitics. Now, Varg also got into heavy metal and playing guitar in his teen years once back in Norway, and by 17, he had joined a band called Old Funeral, which Varg quit before too long because they, quote, only cared about eating and trying to have sex. They weren't interested in my sawed-off shotgun or my dynamite or any of these things. They were only interested in kebabs and hamburgers. They had absolutely no interest in the weapons I liked, because that's what you normally get out of teenage rock musicians. Well, I'm... All I can say is that I'm a 48-year-old man that is, considers himself still a musician, and all I want to do is eat and have sex. Yeah. And hamburgers and, and kebabs sound yeah, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I don't understand I mean, what the beef is. Don't get me wrong. I like guns, but hey. <laughs> if, yeah, Helvetta, but if, we're, if we're prioritizing, yeah, I exactly. get it. Yeah. If Helvetta had kebabs and hamburgers, they might have made a fucking dollar. Yeah. And I, I, admittedly, I feel for Varg on this one. I mean, how dare a bunch of teenage musicians care about having fun and getting to see boobies when they should be out engaging in militia training based on the radically, on the rapidly radicalizing racial views of the edgy Tolkien nerd whose daddy worked for Saddam. Do we know where he was on January 6th? Varg? Not I on YouTube. I assume he was nowhere near the United States. <laughs> right. I you know how what he I feels think... about it. You think he's pro or con? Uh, I, I don't know. I think he's probably pro. Okay. I, I would think pro. What what time frame are we talking about with Varg's with Varg being in in Iraq? Uh, early eight, uh, late seventies, early eighties. So there's a good chance that he was probably exposed to Rush. Here we go. Right? This yes. is I mean this is this maybe. is Padre's, see, see, Padre's see, 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 galaxy Rush, brain. Rush is the gateway drug to black metal and murder and you know, everything that we're going to discuss from here on out. People are, are angrily crafting emails. You better you better because get something you, going if, here if because you, I no, get no, if you want, But it's Rush fans, so they're uh, crafting emails on Linux systems. Exactly, which means we'll never get them. Yeah. Um, and he, he, well, see, here's the whole thing. Normal, normal children, when they develop, they get they get into that goth, they get into that metal phase, and you know they listen to good things like Led Zeppelin and ACDC and all those other things. I'm with you. So then far. there's a group 
and they usually hang out in the AV room or the library, and they get turned on to Rush. And when they do, they get, instead of getting the kebabs and the hamburgers and the boobies, they get all of Tolkien without the sexiness. Why do I feel like you just named three of the four of us at this table? <laughs> which of us is kebabs, which of us is hamburgers, and which one of us is boobies? I never got in the Rush. You know? Yeah. And you know, and and it just gets darker from there. It gets super ethereal, and you're thinking about hobbits and shit, and not thinking about boobies. And well, is it because and, Reddit wasn't a thing and they didn't have an outlet? Yeah, maybe. So I, it's all it's all Getty's fault. Yeah, it's is what it, you're saying. Um, well, I, I, I to be fair, and, and God rest his soul, Peart was the one that wrote most of the music. So, mm, so uh, we're blaming this on yeah. the professor. Yeah. Okay. We are. So it, it's, I would rather like if I have to pick Canadian music to listen to, r- like Rush is way at the. I would rather listen to Ram Ranch. <laughs> then I would I would listen to the trees. Okay, so coming back from from when I was coming back from Texas, I, I flew into DC and we drove back from there. I did see some of those trucks from the convoy. Oh, they got lost on the Beltway. Yeah, yeah. I don't like. I can't fault anybody. They were heading, lost in the Beltway. It I've is been the, on the worst beltway. road in the country. Yeah, like I mean, I, we we caught them when they were heading back to Hagerstown. Well, anyway, we're getting off we're getting off track here. So it's worth noting that while we don't naked cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Google Ram Ranch. Make sure yeah. you're not at work. So also yes. <laughs> Or, or around your family, or any other human Here's beings. I, <laughs> <laughs> I saw a Google open for the translate. Oh, here it is. I, 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 we can play it. He ain't gonna sue us. Let's let's not. Let's. <laughs> you know, we got what we, we got one. We got one fan in all these eleven thousand listens. We got one fan that's like a MAGA guy, and he's like. Oh, Fucking not. Ram Ranch, man! I'm going back, man. <laughs> I can't. Now he lights the cigarette. This He's is just the end. my only friend. Yeah. Staring at the ceiling fan in his is fucking this, single room apartment. Is this our new shtick? Yeah. Is, it, is it just the the thousand yard stare? Yeah, the thousand yard stare. So also, it's worth noting that while we don't actually know when Christian Vickerness started calling himself Varg or thinking of himself as Varg, as he's never really given any account to, towards this end. It, it seems like he's trying to bury whoever he may have been before he was Varg. Like, he's trying to build layers of his personality that Varg is a completely different being from Christian. And why he chose the name Varg also isn't entirely clear either. As again, he's never explained why, but the most likely explanations are either the word Vargir, which is the Old Norse term for werewolf, or he's such a Lord of the Rings nerd that he went with something similar to the wargs, the terrible wolf-like beasts that the orc cavalry would ride when going to war against the realms of man. Well, and he had to change his name from Christian. Mm-hmm. Literally yeah, the antithesis yeah. of everything he was trying to present. Yeah. But after leaving Old Funeral, which I think is a stupid band name. <laughs> if you're Out of try- all the band names that we've mentioned so far, Old Funeral's too far? I mean, no. it's it's Well, no, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Because Old Funeral, like, if, if the person's old, that's good. Or is the funeral itself old? Was no, it just yeah, a long time ago? I about it that way. Okay, you guys are hitting rush territory. Thank you for coming to see Funeral We Don't Remember. (laughs) So after leaving Old Funeral, Varg also found himself getting into the occult and really started working to become a Norse mythology scholar, which, okay, fair enough. Why not? But he also really leaned into becoming the kind of mythology expert that applies it to things like his views on race and the role of women in society and the rejection of modern religious paradigms. Wait a minute, women have a role in society? Hmm? Michael, I'm teasing. Next Michael. thing you, next thing you know, they're going to want to vote and drive an automobile. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Varg's early teen love of Lord of the Rings was also reignited, and his fascination with Tolkien began to meld with his fascination of Nordic myth. Now, this isn't out of the realm of normality, really, because so many of the things that feature in Tolkien's works, like elves, dwarves, trolls, living trees, all of these come from the Scandinavian mythic tradition. Yeah, it's how we had the fucking MCU. <laughs> yeah. Now, where it goes awry is that Varg also started mixing all of the tropes in his life, and he found himself taking a more contrary stance on Tolkien's stories, and instead of identifying with the hobbits, or any of the members of the Fellowship, any of the heroes of the realms of dwarves, elves, and men, Varg began identifying with the villains, like Saruman, Sauron, the Dunlendings, and the orcs, because he saw everything he hated reflected in the free races. I mean, I do own a Stormtrooper costume. It, but, yeah, but st this goes a way, way further than that. I mean, this wart on Norway's taint said that dwarves were, quote, too obstinate and set in traditions, which is fucking ironic, and speaking from somebody who likes to be a Norse scholar, that the hobbits were, quote, weakling pacifists undeserving of their continued existence, that men were, quote, too easily influenced and decadent, and elves were, yep. I hate this, quote, fair but arrogant and typically Jewish. Wait. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, like one, We're back to the one, secret Jewish conspiracy. Just, yeah, you, one, don't, you don't know about the international elven conspiracy? Mm. So, first of all, he was just describing like the literal plot points of why these races exist in, mm -hmm. to drive Tolkien's narratives. Yes. And uh, two, what was the second part? Uh, he, <laughs> he said that elves were arrogant, pompous, and typically, typically Jewish. Which Okay, well, I thought that's what you said. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I hate that I had to say it. He, he decided that orcs were the best thing because they could, if given enough power, erase every other race from the face of Middle-earth. Which, again, is the driving say, narrative. Also going to show my ass well, here in uh, Nerdum, but the orcs came from the fucking elves. Yes, in the Sil yes, if Varg had ever actually followed Tolkien lore, he'd have learned in the Silmarillion that the orcs were descendants of the East Elves who were captured by Melkor and warped magically into the foul beast that served Sauron before the First Age. So his metaphor about the elves, combined with his love of the orcs, doesn't work at all. I've realized now that at the end of this rant, this episode is going to come out, it's going to make the rounds, and I'm never going to be touched by a woman again. Uh, all I am no, going to... Hey, yeah, if I, I, I will I, I, I'll help you out. I'm going to follow this up with this. If there was an international elven conspiracy in Middle Earth, you know what would have made Peter Jackson's movie so much better? Go on. Fucking space lasers. <laughs> I never should have bought you that patch. <laughs> But no, you're going to have to go out Just because I'm a member. Did you ever I'm, think that maybe Varg thought that they were some of the good ones? Oh, gosh. Jesus. <laughs> he, that's the thing is, I know that's a joke, but he may well yeah. have. Well, apparently he just kind of described the plot of basically every Tolkien work. Yeah. Exactly. And it was like, see, I told you so. <clears throat> yeah. All anyone wants to do is talk about fucking Liv Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's going, ooh. I wish I could bang Liv Tyler, but no, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be burning churches. Such famous Jews as Liv Tyler and Hugo <laughs> Weaving. Yeah. So at the same time as he was... <laughs> You've never read the Protocols of the Elders of Rivendell? <laughs> the Elders. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it, and and he's, he's saying all this and wondering why nobody just wanted to hang out with him in Iraq. Shockingly, yeah. <laughs> At the same time as he was forming all of this horseshit into his brain, Varg was really, he really leaned into music, and he made the conscious decision that he was going to become a heavy metal musician. But deciding that no one else but Varg was good enough to be in Varg's band but Varg, Varg formed a one-man performing outfit of his own and named it Burzum. Now, the nerd part of me understands why. The word Burzum comes from the writing on the one ring in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which in the dark tongue spoken in Mordor reads, Ashnaz Durbartuluk, Ashnaz Gimbatul. 
Ashnazk Thrakatuluk, Agburzum Ishi Krimpatul, which of course means, gentlemen, it's one the inscription ring on the to roll them all, one ring to bind them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. Yes. Oh, that is the coolest and thing we have means actual darkness. Yes, and, and Varg chose the evil word for darkness, Borzum, for the name of his band. He would, however, immediately start talking down to anybody who didn't get the reference right off the bat, which... To pull that one off the top of your head, I, you have I to be—you yeah. have to be pretty deep into Tolkien. I read, also, the, I be, read the Lord I, of the Rings at least once a year in its entirety, and, and I, you still wouldn't be able to I pull that off. Exactly, I do. Well, like I, the one thing he got right is that it's an awesome name. I, I'm it still, is a cool name for a for a metal. Yeah, and I am still looking for Kevin Smith money. So um, there's only one return, and it's of the fucking Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> So Burzum also wasn't the first name he tried out for his solo act. The first name he chose was Urukai, the famed subspecies of orc serving Saruman to conquer Rohan. However, Varg abandoned this name because he thought it was, quote, too obvious. Especially when Christopher Lee released the black metal album. Mm. So the announcement of Burzum as a black metal act would, however, start the ball rolling on Tolkien-related names for black metal acts, including some bands that are actually pretty good, like Sirith Ungol, Sirith Gorgor, Morgoth, Gorgoroth, and Amon Amarth, who is actually my favorite among them. However, Vark took things... Aren't they, more... Are they still touring? I don't know. I don't know. I, I... They, they, were in black... so they were black... in Pittsburgh yeah. just shortly before the pandemic. Black metal acts, for me, I'm... I'm good with listening to the music. I'm not really all that keen on going to the live shows. Yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna spend 150 bucks to I'd go. just rather spend my show money on other stuff. However, Vark took one things things one nerdy step further and chose his metal super K, Count Grishnak. Grishnak being the orc captain from Barador who tried to eat Merry and Pippin. The title of Count, which is unrelated to anything Lord of the Rings, doesn't come from anything vampire-related either. Instead, Vark claims that it is it comes from his roots in National Socialism and the root word is Comtes, a Latin term meaning of the people, or a Welsh term meaning Sophie D. That one's for you, Michael. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there it is. We were, I, I was trying to work it in when we were talking about boobies, but... You said <laughs> Welsh, you. and there was just a twinkle yeah. in his eye. Yeah. No, we got to make it here. So, okay. Man, you guys suck at high-fiving. <laughs> so, we're white. <laughs> however, <laughs> they have been talking about Lord of the Rings for the last five minutes. However, okay, so, however much Varg may insist on his own correctness about this, Varg is wrong. The word count does come from Latin, but it comes from the word comes, meaning companion of the emperor. The insistence of Varg that he uses another stage name when he was already walking through his daily life with a stage name, I think, points to that trend he has of constantly trying to bury himself in layers of personality. Because he would go on later in his career to say things like, that's something the Count would do, not something that Varg would do. He says things like that all the time. So with a new persona, a band name, and a pair of demo tapes, Varg traveled from Bergen to Oslo to check out this new record store that he'd been hearing so much about, and to try to get Euronymous to check out his music. He showed up in full corpse paint and getup, and he apparently made quite the impression. Varg was apparently, at least in Euronymous' eyes, talented far beyond his years, considering that he was barely 18 and far beyond what should have been his level of musical experience. Now, remembering that, now remember that Varg didn't get himself guitar until he was about 14. He'd also taught himself bass and drums, and by himself, recorded and layered everything for his demo tracks. Now, Varg was allowed to crash in Euronymous' family's basement, and, as, and soon he was spending far more time in Oslo hanging out with Euronymous than he was at home in Bergen. The two soon became very close, and Varg spent most of his time with Euronymous and the other members of Mayhem. And some have said that their friendship was... Hmm, a little more than that. Although there's no real hard evidence to support this claim, only anecdotal. 
And now I don't know what kind of charisma Varg had at the age of 18, but it must have been something because within weeks before he even had a friggin' EP out for Burzum, this upstart was in an unofficial position of leadership within the black metal scene. Euronymous was still the arbiter of what was cool and what was black metal, but Varg was emerging as the main influencer of everyone's worldview and how black metal interacted with the world around it. As quickly as they became friends, however, Euronymous and Varg became rivals as well because of their competition for influence and the fact that Varg, having still practically just arrived, was quickly fermenting an environment of antagonism between everybody. For Dad's last birthday before his suicide, Varg gave him shotgun shells. Although it's unknown if this was to go dead towards something final after hearing of his suicidal ideation, or simply because of Varg's love of things that go boom. By the, end, by the time of Dead's suicide, Varg and the Norwegian black metal scene were now inextricably linked, and not just because Varg took over for Necro Butcher on base after he left Mayhem. At Varg's encouragement, Euronymous made the, d- the decision to not just sell other bands' music, but to make it. He originally founded the business back in 1987, before Dead had even joined Mayhem, under the name Poser Corpse. But no actual albums were ever produced under that name. Was the poser with a U? Yes. It was. <laughs> In fact, it was. It was, yes. However, Euronymous rebranded the company, using his parents' money, as, quote, Death Like Silence Productions, and produced their first album for who else but Varg, re- recording a re- and releasing Burzum's self-titled first album. Now, this is where we were discussing this during the break. Um, in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is, again, I don't know if this is apocryphal. I don't know if it's in the book. Um, one of the things that Varg wanted the minute they walked into the studio is he said, hang a, hang a microphone in the center of the room, and that's the only microphone I want there. And Euronymous said, well, it's going to sound like shit. And um, Varg said, that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah, if, if you go out and you listen to a lot of uh, black metal music, especially early black metal music from the second wave, it's a lot of it sounds aggressively shitty, and that's the idea. And it's also that, I mean, that's probably twofold. Um, mm-hmm. One, maybe it was intentionally shitty, like Burzum was. And the other one was that they had such a difficult time getting recording space. Yeah. Just because, mm-hmm. I mean, this is much of a, a sub-genre as it was domestically, it was in Norway too. Like this wasn't. It's not like every radio station was pumping these out. I mean, like no radio said, station was. No, no, nobody was. Even, this the hard, was. even the hard rock radio stations weren't pumping out black metal. No, they were playing Judas Priest. Yeah, they were playing. They yeah, were, they're playing Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Metallica. I mean, at this point, they were probably playing a lot of Metallica and Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the first road. I'm gonna say, okay, this is intentionally shitty. As a musician, why would you ever do that? And it, it, Kyle, yeah, Kyle it, you had well, some thoughts. Well, so, yeah, it, one, it fits their fuck-everything aesthetic. Like, okay. let's make this as unpleasant to listen to as possible. And, and secondly, and I don't think this probably wasn't intentional, because I'm sure they weren't aware of it, but there's something to be said that when, when a recording quality is bad, you subconsciously focus on it more. It's something they experimented with with MK Ultra. If you present audio in a way where it's distorted, it's broken, it sounds like a bad radio transmission, your brain by default, works harder to process it. It does a better job of remembering it. Which might be part of why the scene had such an intense following is because on a subconscious level, people were really, really focusing on it. It wasn't background music. You were in there. Well, and, and, and to a degree, I understand that, but there's, there still has to be a certain draw. Um, I, where I would go is a similar time frame. Take a band like Nirvana. There's a difference between Smells Like Teen Spirit and me 
deliberately throwing my microphone into a bathroom and playing, you know, bad chords on a guitar for an hour. I can do that. I have a microphone and a guitar in spare time. I think and that's we, we should do that. I, I, I think that's going to be my next ration. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, Euronymous also used to uh, use the company to produce live shows for the bands with about as much of a production budget as they had before, which is to say, pretty much none. However, by this point, the scene officially had its name for themselves. They were the Norwegian Black Circle, which sounds like what's left in uh, <laughs> what's left in my tub after a long day. Probably what was there left in their tub after they washed off the corpse paint. Yeah. So you'll also be shocked to discover that Euronymous was as good at running a production company as he was at running a record store, and his mismanagement of Death Like Silence would go on to become a major bone of contention between him and everybody else around him, and would possibly be the cause of the black metal scene's most infamous crime, but that's something for the next episode. So what we have to remember is that Varg's arrival into the scene changed absolutely everything. Even though Varg and Euronymous quickly bonded, the rivalry between them developed just as quickly since everyone started hanging on Varg's every word and incorporating his worldview into their own, and Euronymous wanted to maintain his spot as the top dog in the scene, and so the ball starts rolling on this endless cycle of shit-talking and one-upmanship where they constantly have to outdo each other in terms of extremity, and the focus shifts from applying those extreme acts into performance towards actually becoming enemies of the society in which they found themselves. These guys start egging each other on. Everyone else gets in on it, and shit gets out of hand in a big hurry. If your whole if your whole stick is being as evil as possible, eventually you gotta fucking own it. Yeah, and by now, with the addition of Varg and Burson to the scene and the formation of the Norwegian Black Circle, all of the elements of black metal culture within the Scandinavian scene, which would branch out into the wider black metal scene over time, had fallen into place. So thanks to Dead and Mayhem and the scene's hero-worshipping of Dead for his commitment to the darkness of it all, the black metal aesthetic is in the form of corpse paint, long hair, the stage names, the dirty black clothing with all of its rips, tears, spikes, chains, and studs, was fully established as well as the album covers and jacket art that incorporated overtly satanic symbology with utterly incomprehensible band logos. With Helvetta being as dank and filthy as it was, it's no surprise that this spread to other elements of the lives of these scenesters. They rarely washed their bodies. Their hair was an exception because of the aesthetic be de- demanded that the hair be long and straight. And wearing deodorant was unheard of, so these people had a reputation for smelling fucking awful. They were expected to keep their places of living dark and lightless, and cleaning was never a priority either. They never brushed their teeth. Well, I mean, to be fair, when, they, when you're going to a place where they're putting out uh, decomposing rats and mice and things like that, they're probably not worried about their... You know, what yeah, but when you're the halitosis, but when you're in the supermarket, <laughs> like, and one was supposed to be in your full black metal gear, including your corpse paint, as often as was practicable. The aesthetic also extended beyond the sartorial and tonsorial, and into the realm of the behavior as well. To be truly black metal, one was supposed to live a life of complete humorlessness. To laugh, to show enjoyment, was absolutely a no-no. When asked by a journalist in the '90s why laughing was considered to be anti-black metal, Samoth from the band Emperor replied with, "Quote." How are we meant to laugh at anything when we are faced with this laughable society? Which makes no fucking sense because the, if the society is laughable, then it's meant to be laughed at, isn't it, Samoth? That's kind of where I go. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've. It, you got to laugh. <laughs> I'm looking at the world today and I'm sitting here going, you know what? I'm just sitting at the circus eating popcorn. And members of the scene, yeah. And members of the scene were also expected to expend as much energy, making the normies around them feel as menaced as possible, breaking every norm of politeness and decency in public that they were able to. 
For some, this just meant standing around being as menacing as possible, but more than one member of the scene got into some legal trouble just for standing up and taking a shit right in the floor in the middle of public transportation. <clears throat> this happened more than once. And some of them were arrested more than once for it. So all those dudes on the T, they're like black metal people? That's the secret. Yeah, yeah, there it is. So another key aspect of the black metal lifestyle was the complete rejection of almost every other form of music, especially other forms of extreme metal. Despite everything their art form owed to its rock predecessors, most other artists were considered to be complete horseshit in the black metal scene, and the members of the scene would be, were very vociferous about this in interviews and in any other form of media. They would go so far as to show up to other non-black metal metal shows just to disrupt them, like Skinhead showing up at a Dead Kennedy show. Ugh. Death metal was a favorite target of the black metalers, who derided it as trying to be extreme but falling far short, being populated by a bunch of artists and fans who were nothing but posers, unwilling to actually be evil. <clears throat> and there were, in fact, several occasions in interviews where black metal artists kept referring to death metal as life metal, which kicked off a very, very long-standing feud. World star. However, there were some exceptions. Almost universally within the scene, the big metal bands were admired and appreciated, although not out loud in interviews. So you have Metallica, Judas Priest, Motorhead, Sabbath, even some other bands you wouldn't expect, like Kiss and the Misfits. I think because they were generally the groups that first got all these guys into heavy metal in the first place, and they were the one, and these were the shows where the scene would gather before Helvetica became a thing. Priest is so good because so many of these guys are so openly homophobic. We're gonna and get to like, Rob Halford. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's so good. <laughs> of course, it wouldn't be black metal without some hypocrisy either. Euronymous, who was the arbiter of what was true black metal, was secretly a big fan of electronic music and was obsessed with Kraftwerk and Brian Eno, which I get, I'm a big Brian Eno fan, but this was the thing that would get you shunned from the scene by Euronymous if he found out about it. Now, to go along with all their tearing down of other forms of music came the tearing down of each other. Shit-talking other bands and artists was so prevalent within the scene that it was expected, and it was a daily part of the game. No zine interview went, out, went by without a black metal artist claiming that someone else within the scene was a no-talent asshole or wasn't truly evil, and all of this childish, mean-girl fucking nonsense would make it seem like since it was so prevalent that all these guys would be just be inured to it and not take it seriously. But man, did a lot of feelings get hurt. Constantly. They all seemed to take it so personally, and feud after feud after feud developed within the scene as a result. Also, this culture of shit-talk contributed to the constant one-upmanship that took place, leading to that perpetual motion machine of more and more violent crimes that would take place in the, in the scene. And so much of this shit-talking fo focused on another key aspect of the scene, which was the obsession with authenticity. You had to be all black metal all the time to be taken seriously. You had to be fully dedicated to being evil, and any other facets of your personality creeping in was seen as a punishable thing. She doesn't even go to our school. <laughs> like so many other things. Put them in, in a, the slam book, the burn book. <laughs> yeah, like so many. I mean, it's more. It's closer to black metal than you think. I mean, it is the same shit. Like so many other things that started out as a forum for individualistic expression, like the hippie counterculture and Dadaism, it soon went the way that you that if you didn't toe the line and conform to some higher standard, you were out. In the black metal scene, this is referred to as being true cult with the U's being replaced by V's, so it looks a lot more Latin and Gothic, because, of course. If you weren't true cult, you had no place in the scene, and your name was Mud. According to those in the scene at the time, there was no such thing as... And that's Mud with a V, too, yeah. right? Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Mud was also the name of, like, 30 different lead singers. Yeah. <laughs> so they'd be like, oh, what the fuck did we do? Yeah, so, yeah, according to those who were part of the scene, there could be no such thing as casual black metal, even among the fan base. These guys didn't want more fans. They wanted extremely dedicated fans, even though they'd have even though they'd have sold a lot more albums and been a lot more successful, and wouldn't have had to live like dirt people if they'd accepted more casual fans. And one one antidote actually 
there's an antidote that Euronymous was almost thrown out of mayhem, the band he started, because he showed up to a mayhem rehearsal one day wearing a white sweater that his grandmother had knitted for him, and he had to see her that day. And this started a this started a coup within the band. Hellhammer and Necro Butcher almost kicked him out, and he had to make a full fledged mea culpa maximum apology in front of the entire scene. Didn't he write it out? Yeah, it was like a written statement. Yeah. Or a typewriter, because, of course. Like, mm-hmm. He had his own letterhead. He just wrote it in chicken blood. <laughs> so the, a lot of the ire in the black metal scene was directed at modern Norwegian society, the baseline of which is lodged in a lot of teenagers' views that society sucks and things need to change. But in the case of the black metalers, the view was that life in Norway was too good. Norway is one of the most liberal countries on the planet and constantly ranked among the highest for overall happiness of the population and quality of life with a very robust social safety net that all of these kids were the beneficiaries of because they're all unemployed and on the dole. Isn't it also ranked the highest in suicide, though? Yeah. It's always way up there. All those Scandinavian countries are. um, Probably has something to do with the sun, I'm guessing. Northern Russia and some of the northern Canadian provinces and Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. So, another... (laughs) They also saw the prison system as way too lenient where, I mean, they may have a point, as we'll discover later, but the big gripe from these guys, who wouldn't last a day in any American state penitentiary, was that the prisons should instead be dank, stone-built, medieval-style dungeons rather than modern places of incarceration. Now, another facet of the ideology that only started to emerge once all the pieces were in place was the homophobia and the misogyny. Norway is a famously liberal country in terms of LGBTQ rights and has been for some time, and the same thing goes for things like uh, pay for women, maternity leave, and the proportion of women in leadership positions. And... During the wave of black metal that Mayhem really started, there wasn't anything really said to oppose this. However, once the scene coalesced around Helveta, Euronymous, and Varg, the messaging regarding the role of women and the attitude towards queer people gets really, really toxic and hostile. Oh, absolutely. And I think Varg is the catalyst behind this. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. always been and still is the loudest voice about the view that women should be subservient to men, and a lot of the guys in the scene started parroting this viewpoint. Also, in the early 90s, the scene made it impossible for female black metal artists to find a place for the reason we just mentioned. Now, there's Quite a few now, like uh, Kat, like uh, Cadaveria, Astarte, and Mirkor, who are all great female black metal artists. But back then, the idea of women being part of these bands was absolutely laughed off, and the female fans were treated pretty much how you would expect, as little more than useful servants and sexual playthings. Then the homophobia really takes off once Varg shows up as well. Before his arrival, there's really nothing much said about LGBTQ people by the black metal scene. But once he shows up, the casual hatred of gay folks ramps up severely. The party line in the scene was that though homosexuality was in contrast to the Judeo-Christian model they were trying to subvert, it was an expression of weakness and non-masculinity, and the emerging embrace of LGBTQ people by society at large should be rejected. Of course, though, some uh, some hypocrisy. First off, these guys all love Judas Priest, and one of the artists they idolize is Rob Halford who they discuss as being the ultimate expression of masculinity. Breaking the law, breaking the law. However, as we know, Rob Halford is... I mean, he's... Yeah, Rob Halford is openly gay. One of my my favorite... One of my favorite interviews... I was... It was on MTV, like, right after he came out. He looks right at the camera and he says, I know a whole bunch of you... I'm I'm, I'm almost guessing he was talking to the black metal scene. Maybe. Um, He looks at the camera and he says... I know a whole bunch of you guys out there that are metalheads are thinking, if I listen to Judas Priest, and I like Judas Priest, does that make me gay? And he says, totally fucking yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like, 
it was weird how insular the scene was because yeah. nobody nobody recognized even domestically like at the height of all of this that Rob Halford was a leather daddy. Yeah. Oh, like, it, 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 it's, yeah. It's, oh, I think breaking the laws about we, guns. No, we, it's about butt stuff. It yep. sure is. We, we, well, yeah, here's it's about the thing. Laws. I, I'll, I will be the first to tell you. I, I mean, I watched him through the eighties. I, I was there for Up All Night. I was there for like, like all the Metal Mania shows on on MTV the whole way through. And I got to tell you, I went, huh, Rob Halford came out as gay? That's weird. And then I went back and watched the videos, <laughs> and I went, oh! <laughs> I, I really love I really love Mike's rock and roll grandpa corner. Yeah. It's my favorite. <laughs> I, I've, seen Judas, wow. I've seen Judas Priest live, and... He is maybe the single most talented vocalist I've oh, ever he's seen. Incredible. He's incredible. That, that man could have sung to the the uh, the lawn at Star Lake without a microphone. Oh, like, I believe I've it. never heard anything I, like that. I, I hey, believe man, it. What's more heavy metal than getting somebody else to play with your prostate for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. so also a recurring theme in the discussions these guys had about ways to be truly evil and spit in the face of modern Nordic society is to have anal sex with another dude. To quote one of Fark's correspondences from jail, quote, then this is hilarious. In the Bible, it says that you should not let sperm fall to the ground. We reasoned that if you shoot it up someone's ass into the sewer, then that's the worst thing you can do. That's Satanism. And Hieronymus loudly exclaimed, yes! (laughs) The sewer. So in more recent years, the vast majority of artists from the early 90s scene have all renounced their former viewpoints on such things. It made it clear that they consider all people to be welcome in the scene, regardless of gender or sexuality. And for younger generations of black metal acts, this has never been a problem. I know some of the artists... I'm going to go spoiler alert and say, except Faust. But Faust isn't one of the younger people. Okay. And we're going to get to Faust in the next episode. And some of the artists from the early 90s have since come out of the closet and are living as openly queer individuals, which is super cool. However, some of the true pieces of shit like Varg, Hellhammer, and Faust Mm -hmm. still go on and on about LGBTQ people and how their existence is indicative of the downfall of society, deported, wiped out, whatever, but fuck those guys. He thinks they doth protest too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's already already talking about the sewer an awful lot. Yeah. So another... (laughs) That's so not hot. You wanna you wanna look for Master Splinter while you're up there? <laughs> Tell him to get me a pizza. Oh man, now now it's turned into a Richard Gear thing, and I'm just <laughs> so another goddamn it. Yeah. Another element that's happily worked its way out of the scene by now that Varg really brought in is the accept is is racism and home and xenophobia. Now, Norway since the late 70s has been very accepting of immigrants and especially refugees, and the vast majority of the population overwhelmingly supports this, but thanks to Varg's white supremacist upbringing, his influence started inserting a rejection of all non-whites and non-Nordics within the scene, as well as a strain, as we saw before with his comments on the elves, of anti-Semitism. Before Varg showed up, this wasn't really prevalent, at least not in any of the media or statements, and of course, all the bullshit one-upmanship led these guys progressively saying more and more heinous things, much like with the homophobia. And of course, there's always been some complicated ties between people's fascinations with Norse lore and white supremacy, but newsflash, you can really like Norse myth and not be racist. There's a lot of ways to do that. I would still suggest not getting a trihammer tattoo on your bicep, though. Yeah, that's normally... People make assumptions. Yeah. I also think it's useful to illustrate precisely what we mean when we talk about the black metal brand of Satanism. Most of the time in the modern period when someone's a Satanist... They're practicing a modern form of Satanism popularized by Anton LaVey back in the 60s and 70s. It's essentially spicy atheism. I mean, it's more of a political stance and is based around contrarianism. 
a brand of personal libertarianism and mockery of more established religious ritual, as well as being an avenue for meeting like-minded people and for nerds to get laid. There's not really any actual worshipping of Satan. If you go around to modern Satanists and ask, hey, do you actually believe in Satan, worship Satan, the vast majority are going to tell you no. From behind their big pile of Funko Pop figurines. Yep. <laughs> Black metal Satan, Satanism is a complete rejection of Levain Satanism. They see Satan as a very real figure who is in a constant battle with God, who, to the black metalers, is also very real for control of the world. The message there is far more like medieval Christianity or modern evangelical Christianity. It just so happens that these guys come down on the other side of that battle than most people, on the side of Satan and evil. There's no fun rituals with a naked lady as an altar, followed by a fuck party going on here. Mm. Ironically, their belief that God and Satan are both very real makes them more Christian than most Norwegians. It's a super atheist country. Yeah, when while, while Norway does have an official state religion, which is a branch, a branch of Lutheranism, a strong majority of Norwegians, nearly 70%, consider themselves to be non-religious or religiously unaffiliated, and somewhere around only 3% of Norwegians re regularly attend church services. There's a great quote from Lord of the Chaos that says, quote, Most Norwegians go to church three times in their life, and in the first and third times they're carried in. And while the viewpoint of Levain Satanism is essentially do no harm to those who have done no harm to you, black metal Satanism instead argues go out and do harm for Satan. Now in the last couple of decades, while Satanism and darkness is very much still the brand for black metal, the attitude towards Satanism has eased up, and most artists treat things a lot more like King Diamond and the guys from Venom. It's fun. It's, it's fun branding. <clears throat> it's, it's a theme. Yeah. It's, a, it's a goof. Yeah, it's, it's a leitmotif. It's just kind of, you know, it's an, it's an environmental thing for shows. As long as the fan base isn't taking it seriously, you're good. It's like Ghost. Like, yeah. let's have fun with it. Let's put a stage show together. Mm -hmm. I do, however, find it interesting matching up the black metal scene's Christian Satanist duality worldview with their belief in the Norse pantheon, because those things seem to me to be quite at odds. Which is something that I... Which is something that, it, and I'm sure we're going to get into this with Varg, is kind of the problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. with his excuses later. Yeah, none of these guys have ever seemed to be able to give an adequate explanation for it. They can't square it, and neither can I. So speaking of the scene's obsession with Norse myth, I think Euronymous and Varg are the ones who really make being a scholar of Asatru a part of the scene's zeitgeist, but the fascination was there before these two started their gamesmanship. If you're going to base your posture around the rejection of Judeo-Christian ideas, you're going to focus in on the thing that Christianity replaced in Scandinavia. Plus, they're also far more culturally connected to their pa pagan past, just through proximity and education. Mm -hmm. Right. The fascination with Tolkien's lore, specifically how seriously it's taken later on, comes from two places. One is the fact that all these dudes are nerds. Every single one of them. And most of them would have been very familiar with Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion. The second is, as we mentioned earlier, Varg. He becomes the biggest influencer in the scene. There you go. It's cemented. And Moynihan and Sotolin bring up an interesting point in Lords of Chaos, that so many of the elements of black metal seem to have a curious connection to an important part of Norse legend called the Wild Hunt. Now, I'm not sure if this is by design, by sheer coincidence, some function of Jungian cultural memory, memory, or possibly a combination of all of the above, but the scene and its music begin to reflect this key mythological artifact in various curious ways. Known in Norse as the Oskarai, the Wild Hunt were harbingers of doom, said to foretell storms, famine, and war. Riding through the night sky to serve the Norse chief god Odin, this gang of dead souls from the spirit realm would cause swathes of destruction and mischief as they traveled around, sowing terror and raising a hellish din. Now, dressed in dark rags and covering themselves in ash and coal to accentuate their dead appearance, especially around the eyes, this army of young souls, mostly the dead hell-raising young men in their teens and twenties, 
would seek to kidnap souls to drag them to the underworld. They would carouse with shrieking falsetto shouts and songs to announce their coming. The Wild Hunt would set fires, destroy homes and barns, tear up roofs, clog chimneys, break windows, nail doors shut, and, according to the translation used for Lord of, Lords of Chaos, lock up the he-goat in the kitchen, whatever that means. Now, fueled by alcohol and fly agaric mushrooms, they would raid food and drink stashes, draining the casks of ale and mead and replacing it with mass quantities either of their own piss or an awful lot of horse piss. Thus, we see quite a list of similarities, either by design or by accident. The hellish din raised by the Wild Hunt can be seen as being mimicked in Black Metal's brutal music and screeching vocals. The black clothes and corpse paint meant to mimic the dead appearance of the Wild Hunt, the members of the scene all being of a similar age to those departed souls, the use of stage names compared to the members of the Wild Hunt having spirit names of their own, and the focus on raising hell and rejecting all the trappings of polite society falling right in line with the chaos that the Wild Hunt would sow. It kind of just sounds like Krampus knocked. Yeah. Well, it's it's a bit more. <laughs> a little than that. more piss. Yeah, yeah I, I we only we, I think we only pissed in a couple kegs of beer at the last Krampus knocked. Yeah, there's some bars that don't let us back yeah. in anymore. Now, most strikingly, too, the purpose of the Wild Hunt was the punishment of those who violated Norse tradition and the old ways. All of this could be an anthropological leap, or the key figures all read the right material, or some kind of deeper unconscious connection to their pagan Norse past. But I still find it to be an interesting juxtaposition either way. Finally, in the fall of 1991, the Norwegian Black Circle decided to put their money where their mouth was, and so began a wave of crimes that would last for years, cross international borders, and see a wave of death, violence, and destruction. It all began with some light church vandalism and theft where several members of the scene broke in, smashed all the windows, and stole some goblets and crosses to decorate the record store with. Towards the end of the year, there was a rash of cemetery des desecrations. Things really turned, however, on Saturday, June 6th, 1992, the sixth day of the sixth month on the sixth day of the week. Yeah! Number five. Where a group of black metal <laughs> scenesters, strongly suspected to be led by Varg but not confirmed, set fire to Fantoft Stave Church, five miles outside of Bergen on Norway's west coast. Now, Fantoft wasn't just any church, it was one of Norway's famous stave churches. Churches built out of wood that have stood since the earliest days of Christianity in the Norway all the way back to the 11th and 12th centuries. Right. Whereas most wooden churches eventually rot, collapse, and have to be replaced, Norway's cold weather helps preserve these ancient, beautiful, ornately carved wooden artifacts of a bygone age. Fontoft itself has stood since 1150, and over 90% of its timbers are originals from the time of construction. And to be fair, and, and this is when we, we like uh, with just, uh, Justinian, when we talked about uh, the Agia Sevilla, mm -hmm. this is not, these aren't, it's not a church in that you should venerate it because it's Christian. This is an amazing building. Yeah. Yeah, they're historical architectural yeah. wonders. Right. Yeah. I'm not particularly religious, but this kind of stuff still fascinates me because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not an right. iconoclast. Mm -hmm. The artistry and the craftsmanship involved in these things is incredible. They're also Which, super metal. Like, yeah. they're filled with, like, depictions of carved demons and, mm -hmm. like, occult symbol. Like they're a, lot of Nordic, a lot of Nordic animal yeah. carvings and super all kinds of stuff. Cool. They're these huge, ornate black spires. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huh. They're incredible. So, it took less than an hour for these teenage dickheads to burn it completely to the ground. According to an interview Varg gave a couple years later, before the group poured paint thinner on the building and lit it, they chased down a rabbit on the church grounds, which Varg said was actually the most difficult part of the evening's events. They then decapitated the poor little bunny 
and laid it on the front steps of the church, which Varg said was simply to inflict more sorrow. While the fire was originally thought to be the result of a lightning strike or an electrical short, an investigation soon found traces of the accelerant, and the public soon learned that a prized symbol of Norway's past had fallen victim to arson. Justice for this act would be a long, long time in coming, and though Fontoff's stave church would be rebuilt, it took six years and several million dollars worth of public funds, hmm. plus the construction of a security fence around the reconstruction. It was with this act of desecration that the Norwegian black metal scenes war against their own society, which had done so much to help foster the environment that helped them create their art, truly began. And it wouldn't end before Norway would taste far more flame and ash, and the bodies would begin to pile up. And the eye-rolling at the actions of these dorky fucking morons would begin to be measured in miles. But we'll hear all about that in the second half of our series on the Norwegian black metal scene to come. So, that's part one, fellas. What do you think? One is the fun one. Yep. The second one's going to get a lot darker. These dickheads were only able to pursue their life of leisure and music because of what society gave them. Correct. And they just... They hated society for it. Pissy man. They're so fucking dumb. I saw a man last year, and it's it's the same... It's along the same vein. Had a, a... a bumper sticker, or um, it wasn't a bumper sticker, it was like across the window, and it just said, fuck your feelings, and he was towing a party boat. Why are you mad if you have a pontoon boat? <laughs> yeah, if you got a party barge, how bad yeah, is your life? How bad is it? It was like a sweet, like, giant bay line. It was a, a very expensive. Why are you so mad? You've got a sweet boat. Just go hang on your boat. Stop being mad. I mean, I, I think a lot of these guys... That's why these kids burn down burn down so many churches, because it's not warm enough for party boats. <laughs> yeah, well, i got to say that they, they, these it, these kids burn down a whole bunch of churches because they were assholes. That's, that's exactly <laughs> I mean, they were privileged assholes yeah. that didn't have a... Ch- they, Oh my God! My life is so horrible. Yeah, I, take- I, I, I don't have the late. Well, to, to translate it to, to thirty years later, I don't have the latest iPhone. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I can't adult today. But they had the latest iPhone because their parents were fucking rich. Yeah, yeah. My, a lot of these people. Uh, my parents got. Yeah, my parents they, got me a Maserati for my 18th birthday. I thought they were buying me a Bentley. Yeah, I should kill them. That, in no, I got. I, I got a. I got a 2021 Maserati, not a 20, yeah. 2022. So, uh, these motherfuckers. Time, time to kill. Time to pull a Melendez, brothers. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, it's. Yeah, <laughs> some of these guys do end up having a bit of a redemption arc, but man, they have to work hard to get it. So, well, they did. Yeah. Sometimes you d- deserve a long redemption arc. Yeah. Read that, Louis C.K. <laughs> I, I can just imagine like all the cops in these situations so often just sitting there and just going, <sighs> tell me why you did this. And then they have to <laughs> send them back to one of their like, actual yeah. rehabilitation jails, not like our scary American pay for gulags. We'll, we'll, <laughs> once some of these guys start going to jail, we'll talk about the Norwegian prison system. Mm. Um, and also, before we finish today, I know we talked a lot about dead suicide and the scenes glorifying of it, but I want to reinforce to everybody out there that if you are having suicidal thoughts, please do reach out and get help. Yes, amen. Yes, the heavy metal thing to do isn't to give in. It's to claw your way back from those depths. It's to reach out and get that help. It's to spit in the face of adversity by living. Nothing is more black metal than existing. And, and, and the heavy metal thing to do is to get to the next show. 
and yeah. the next show and the show after that. So please, please, please keep going. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, guys, you know this. I, I suffer from major depressive disorder. I know. And every one of the every one of the guys at these table at this table knows that when it comes to me, they know when I haven't checked in a couple of days, they check on me. I mean, this is it's so. serious shit. This is probably one of the things that hits me the most about studying this one is dead suicide because mm-hmm. I get it. I've been there. It's brutal so. and it's a waste. And just remember that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 273-8255. So next time we're going to be covering uh, the second half of the story, a little bit darker, and we're going to be uh, doing a bit of a where are they now with some of these guys. And some of it's okay. Some of it's just as enraging, stupid. and some of it is still, as you see, yeah, ethically yeah. stupid. Absolutely. So, Chris, if people want to find us on social media, where can they do that? If you'd like to find us on social media, uh, especially in this one, because like Rob had said, if there are people out there that uh, have anything they would like to add that are still active in the scene, or just fans of the scene, we might have skipped something or even got something wrong, uh, shoot us an email at trrpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at podcasttrr. Uh, follow us on Instagram at TRRPod. You can find us on Facebook. All you have to do is search Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And you can also find us at www.patreon.com slash TRRPod. Rob? And, yes, uh, thank you to all of our Patreon's uh, supporters. We thank you for your continued support. Also, if there are any uh, people out there looking to advertise products, services, anything like that, we want to start working with you. We also want to get in touch with some other uh, creators, uh, people who are out there making art, making music, making podcasts. We want to start doing some cross-pollinating, so please do reach out. We want to help get the word out there about what you're trying to do in the world. So, gentlemen, anything else before we wrap up for the evening? Um, I just have one question. Yes. Is there a black metal band called Catherine the Great? I was wondering how the fuck you were going to work it in. It's about horse fucking! <laughs> What's really impressive is that wasn't Kyle, that was Chris. I didn't think you had it in you, buddy. Well, you know, I gotta, I gotta flex the old pipes every once in a while. <laughs> I thought years of smoking, right? Back, my, that. back to my days on tour. <laughs> All right, everybody, we'll catch you next time. God damn you, Mike, for getting that joke. I was, I thought, I, I thought we were gonna get away clean. I'm so mad. We're so close. <laughs> I'm so mad. I'm gonna. Nobody gets away clean from black metal. Although I, I will no, say no, this, no. you, you have redeemed yourself. I am glad that you showed up today for this recording in your black leather with spikes and full corpse paint. Well, yeah, because you got to get in the zone. Yeah, Otherwise, exactly. you're just just yeah. a fucking poser. You you are true cult. I have questions about the horse you rode it on, but <laughs> you are true. You are true cult. I, I I guarantee you, this time I was on top. Well, why do you? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the old switcheroo, eh? Now I know why your black metal stage name is Lady Godiva. Guess <laughs> <laughs> it's more black metal than sodomy. <laughs> All right, we need to get out of here before this gets any worse. Take it easy, everybody. We'll see you next time for part two. Hold fast. Slava Ukraini. Bye.